welcome to Eurovision Song Context, the podcast that tries to get to the bottom of what makes an ESC submission successful. Why do we love the submissions we do, and what do they say about us? It's a tour of taste, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. In every episode, I chat with a special guest, and we eventually talk about a few old ESC songs. It's episode two. I'm Bradley Dalton Oates, and I'm joined today by Dave DeVito. He's an author of the Vinyl Tiger book series, a teacher and former curator. We'll talk about the 1980s and then chat about some iconic submissions from 2016, including Polly Genova, Dami Im, and Sir Hat. I always encourage you to go to the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm and watch the submissions before we talk about them. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Bradley. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Yay! Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks okay. for having me. No, thank you for being here. You have, as you can tell, um, Dave and I know each other um, from a previous, from, from, from a work life long, long ago, but you're here because you wrote a book on the 1980s, or better, uh, a novel set in the 1980s. And I invited you on today to talk about all of the 80s vibes in 2021's Eurovision, but we're not going to do that. I know. Because uh, while we were... Yes! Yeah, because I got sidetracked um, by some other editions, so I, I've thrown you for a loop on this one. I, I, I know, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like the 1980s and Eurovision, it's kind of just like, uh, it's got depth and breadth. You could just go wide and deep. So, you know, maybe we'll save that for another for another edition, but you are also Australian and Italian. Uh-huh. Um, Guilty. So yes. yeah, I don't know I don't know how long you've I don't know how long you've been in uh, in Italy now. I've been here for How many years has it been? Uh, coming on to 13 years so soon enough. So yeah, I'm in my 12th year at the moment. Wow. Mhm. Oh, yes, I remember yes, the 12th yes. year. Oh, yeah. yeah. Magical <laughs> times. Yes, every single one of them. I get it. I get it. Um, so both Australia and Italy are countries with like super big cultural, um, you know, associations. Like you're going to, you're bound to get some caricatures, right? With both. Um, yeah. Do, do, do you believe in cultural identity that, that like national stereotypes are true in, in some way? Yeah, I do. But I, I, I think there's a bit of a fine line for some people between the idea of a cultural identity and perhaps cultural stereotyping, because I think some people are able to kind of separate the two ideas at a certain point as well. Um, mm, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been living in Italy for, for more than a decade now. And I have those moments where I still feel Australian, you know, but that Australianness tends to come out when I'm having some kind of resistance to what's going on around me. So... I know exactly what you mean. Um, can you give a good example? Yeah, well, you know from your own experience that when you live in a country like Italy, you, you are faced with this constant disorganization and ridiculous 
bureaucracy and somehow you kind of have to accept that as a part of your daily life. And so those are the moments of the day when I feel especially Australian. Um, yeah. But when I'm yeah. in Australia, I, mean, I have the reverse. I don't know about you. For sure. Yeah, because I'm an American that was in Italy for for 12 years. And um, yeah, I think on the surface, they're, they're, they're both, let's say, outgoing cultures, um, exuberant cultures. And then there hits that time where you think, yeah, like um, getting things done, anything that falls in the getting things done category, maybe not so much. Is cultural stereotyping something you like in ESC? I mean, I don't know, like the butter churning German people or you know, something like that, right? I, I, when, when an ESC act comes on, do you think, oh, that's just like the fill in the blank culture, you know, that's just like the Germans or whatever else? I think if it's done with a sense of humor and, you know, and they're not taking themselves too seriously, then I'm, I'm kind of happy to see it. But it's, I don't think I, it's what I really look for in Eurovision these days, you know. I think, uh, mm. you know, some countries are good at trading on that in a really humorous way and some are just perhaps relying too heavily on, on, on these stereotypes that they've created for themselves. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you were saying that cultural identity might be more more powerful than the idea of a national stereotype. Yeah, um, yeah. And that, that that might be different different in Italy as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, because I think the in my mind they're two very different things. I think um, cultural identity is is quite potent and and it's and it's very separate to a stereotype because when I think about a stereotype, it's almost like the punchline of a joke. And in Italy, the thing I've really noticed is that um, Italian people tend to identify much more with where they're from, the region or the city, than they do with Italy as a whole. So I think, it, you know, when I, when I speak generally about these things like hand gestures and, and silences and, and that kind of thing, I have to take into account, well, most Italians might struggle to see themselves in that as well. You know, it, it, it comes down to that point. It's. Ooh, I, I think that comes down. I have thought about this quite a lot. I think it comes down to Italy becoming a nation so late, you know, like the identity was built in um, earlier, maybe in the medieval period or something like that, or even earlier back to the Romans. Yeah. I mean, there are things, I find it's as an Australian looking in, I I sometimes have created this idea for myself about Italians that Italians are kind of like the Europeans with the lowest form of self-esteem, even though <laughs> even though people no. from the outside think that they are not, you know, that they think they're the complete opposite of that. But in fact in, in Italy it's um you know, one thing is that they're they're not really big on self-promotion. And so I find that really interesting. I think, you know, you're always, in a way, you're always being expected to keep yourself in check to a certain point, you know, not to kind of brag about yourself. And, and that also extends to the to the world of business and, and the professional world as well. You know, in, in a lot of English-speaking countries, we're expected to kind of sell ourselves and sell our talent and our experience as something that, um, differentiates us 
from everybody. But in Italy, that's kind of a little bit frowned upon. So I find that kind of a really fascinating aspect of of the psyche here as well. Yeah, um, I agree 100%. I agree 100%. I think that might translate itself into sometimes, though, um, Italians not sort of executing things. I mean, I think this was the case in Turin. There were so many good ideas. And I don't know, I think that somehow that kind of, I don't know what to call it, that kind of thing that you're talking about Definitely, when things get executed, you think, "Oh, come on, Italy! You can do, you can execute." The ideas were all there; you just needed to execute. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. Yeah, I, 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 I get what you're saying. I think sometimes there's a, a lack of um, people wanting to kind of see the initiative through. You know, there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of discussion, and and a lot of times it's really robust and people make really good points. But I think sometimes people don't want to step up and and maybe take that leadership role because maybe they, you know, but underneath that there there is a bit of a fear of stepping on people's toes and, and, you know, going outside or beyond what's expected of them. You were saying that beyond all the art and the food, it's like Italian authors and songs and films that unite Italians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, Tell me more you know, in, in my mind, um, this is a country where, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, it, it feels more regional, you know, and even a visitor notices that if you, you know, you visit Tuscany, you can have a very different experience than you would if you visit, say, Rome or, or somewhere different. So yeah, the, yeah. the one thing that tends to unite Italians is culture that makes it through at a national level. And so for me, going also stepping back a little bit into that idea of cultural identity, cultural identity for me is is something that is is living it's a living thing and and it's an entity and it's yeah. about the connection we have to perhaps cultural products like a, a great book a great film uh, great music or moments in in the culture that people are really familiar with and so in a country like Italy which already has you know centuries-long traditions in art and food. I mean, if you think about the, the amount of music, the, the amount of classic films and amazing authors that they have, I mean, these are the things that are uniting Italians and overcoming that kind of, that regional bias that they have. And, and for someone like me who didn't grow up with these films or listening to these songs, that kind of makes me feel like an outsider because it's it's almost like I, I don't fully understand what it really means to be Italian if I don't have insight into those experiences as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like that with food or um, I remember comedians, like when you start watching comedies and the, the sense of humor, not only do you have to get the language, but like the sense of humor is so different between like Alberto Sordi, who is Roman, or Benini, who's from Florence, or... Um, Massimo Truisi, who's from the Naples area. Um, it's very difficult. It, it becomes very difficult, I think. You, you become like a cultural anthropologist. Like, there's an outside-looking-in thing because it's it gets a little bit complex. I mean, from my experience, anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. I, and, I, and I think it's, I mean, 
we all have grown up in, in different contexts, right? In different countries with different experiences. And, and in some countries, the, the experience or the culture, the idea is quite uniform. And in others, you know, the way society has kind of developed and progressed has not been that way. It's kind of been like lots of separation and then eventual unification. And, and that plays with people's minds, I think, over, over, over a period of time. You were saying that you don't watch Sanremo. You don't watch Sanremo, is that true? Oh no, you're going to get me into so much trouble because that is such a sore point amongst <laughs> my friends here, but it is true. I don't I've, watch... I've heard, you, I've, heard you, I've heard you very occasionally, almost never, but sometimes when it's really good, watch Sanremo. Okay, I, for those who, who don't know what Sanremo is, it's like a national music festival here in Italy. It happens every year. And it's it like, selects it selects for Eurovision, yeah. It selects it, for Eurovision, exactly. but it's bigger than that. It's it's yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was what Eurovision was based on. It's 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 Eurovision is patterned on San Remo. Exactly. So it's like Mount Rushmore when it happens. And I don't even have a television, right? But the that's not the reason I don't watch it. I don't watch it because I'm a very loyal. It's also something that you just can't avoid when San Remo hits. It is all people talk about and all people want to, yeah, to sure. you know, to gossip about. So there's no avoiding it. You, you know, even in a, in a distant cave somewhere, you're going to end up hearing one of the horrible songs that will probably be voted by the public. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's the water cooler topic for the time. I don't watch it because I'm loyal to Eurovision, but also be, uh, because of all of those things that you said before, you know, I, I find entering you know watching that culture of songs that is often presented i mean there's a handful of great things that come out but it's you know it's like this three or four night long process which is is not incredibly enjoyable for me but that said my can i what do you think is the percentage of horrible songs to something great because you know, for me, I like, in English, I like acts like um, Andrew Bird, who is really American, but delightful. So maybe not, um, let me pick something more mainstream. Uh, Lou Reed, right? I, I like, it's not the quirk. It's the someone has marked out their own territory and they were doing a thing kind of really intentionally. So what's the percentage of like just predictable San Remo stuff to gems? I mean, would you say it's like 80-20, 90-10? How much San Remo do you have to watch? to get one gem, two gems? I don't know. I mean, I, I have to say for, for I guess, my resistance to San Remo, um, I would say that it's also been responsible for something of a renaissance in, in Italian music of late. You know, there's been some great songs that have really been coming out and they've been getting a lot of uh, airplay and... You know, they really become the centre of of the conversation in, in many ways. Don't get me wrong, you know, that sometimes there are incredible, innovative moments and I, and I love the fact that it has made people kind of think about Italian music as something that doesn't necessarily have to be traditional, it can be something modern and new and appeal to younger audiences. And I think that's what San Remo has done in recent years, right? I think it has kind of brought back a lot of the younger viewers and and brought back a lot of those kind of water cooler moments as well. In terms of the 
the quality of songs, you know, it depends on the year. This, this and last year, I can think of five or six songs that my nieces and nephews made me listen to on repeat. And I don't know whether it was a case of just, um, you know, submission, but by the end of it, I kind of enjoyed some of those songs as well. So, yeah. Do you think there's such a thing as cultural appropriation in Eurovision? Is that a thing or is, is, is everything up for grabs? I don't know. I mean, there's different trains of thought on that, right? I mean, on the one hand, there's really cynical grabs for, you know, those Latin beats and, and other traditions or whatever. And sometimes it's okay and it's acceptable because, you know, we, we borrow and steal from, from everybody. That's fine. But then sometimes I just, you know, I, I cringe. I cringe if I have to watch someone, um, you know, someone from Cyprus, for example, doing a Latin banger and, and not pulling it off. Or, you know, suddenly mm. every single every single European country has this, you know, centuries-long tradition of ballet dancing that I wasn't aware of. That's another thing that annoys me. So I do think the wholesale adoption of of other cultures is is really wrong at Eurovision, you know? The, it, it's kind of a cultural displacement for a, a cultural contest in a way. But, you know, at the same time, if you're borrowing and not simply copying ho- um, wholesale, I think it's fine at that point. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so you are an author and you're going to mm-hmm. tell us a bit about your books. However, I want to run a theory by you, right? Yeah. So we're talking about the 1980s. We're transitioning to talking about the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a list in front of me of like trends from the 1980s. Ooh. My theory on this. Yeah, I know. I know. Last minute addition to the show. But I, I, I when I look back at old Eurovisions, speaking of cringe, they always make me cringe. But I think some of this today has baggage. And I think that there's a way in which when you watch Eurovision or old Eurovisions, we see the worst versions of these trends and are thus reminded of ourselves, right? Uh, A good example is like denim on denim. Uh Uh-huh. Double denim, I call that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The double, yeah, we, there is a, yeah, I I won't rip. There's a thing that we say in America and I'm not going to repeat because it's not very nice. (laughs) There's a way in which like when I see Michael Jackson or Madonna, there's like the things that, represent the 1980s, like the single glove or lace or whatever else, you know. But I think about those as kind of high culture. And I think about some of these things as kind of low low culture. And I think the low culture shows up in Eurovision. And I think there's a lot of low culture in the 80s. I'm going to read some of these out, right? Uh, okay. Preppies, hair metal, Bananarama, Care Bears, Gigantic earrings, stirrup leggings, banana clips, mood rings, hairspray, aerobics, shoelace hair clips, t-shirt rings, jelly bracelets, Barbie, side ponytails, sticker albums, hypercolor shirts, charm bracelets, uh, strawberry shortcake, the mullet, slap bracelets, hair crimping, big hair, uh, shoulder pads, leg warmers, jelly shoes, fishnet stockings, Fingerless gloves, fine. Uh, candy bracelets and parachute pants. I'll add those all to du- double denim. And um, how do you, as, as someone who's written about the 1980s, how do you, are those high culture, low culture? 
transcend culture. I don't know, cringy, not cringy. I think they were just prime examples of how innovative the 1980s really were, Bradley. And I must, <laughs> I, I must say, I take a bridge to a couple of those points that you made because as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm looking at my jelly bracelets that I still wear. And <laughs> up until recently, up until the passing of Olivia Newton-John, Bananarama were my screensaver on my phone. So I'm probably not the best person to ask about that, but definitely there's a major cringe factor going on there. And like, just if you think of the environmental destruction that half of those objects kind of brought on, um, like independently, all of themselves, one must say, okay, there were some things that the 80s really did get wrong. Um, I mean, you don't know what's going to age well. Um, and we will talk about Kate Bush later. So let's save that for later. But like some things age well, maybe, maybe your jelly bracelets just aged well. Maybe Bananarama aged well. Hard to tell. Well, um, you know, um, I did. I did buy a bag of a hundred jelly bracelets the other day because, you know, there's just some things that I'm just not not prepared to let go of at the moment. Don't like. Why should you? <laughs> why should you? Absolutely. All right. So you have written a book set in the 1980s. Um, can you can you tell me about your book? It's called Vinyl Tiger. Just for this is a late pitch. I feel like I should have, you know, I should have been pitching this more strongly throughout. However, Vinyl Tiger, Vinyl Tiger. Tell us about your book, please. Thank you. It's um, it's a series of books that I started a couple of years back, and uh, the the original idea for for the books was um, when I was looking back, I was wondering, gosh, what would life have been like in the eighties if we had a real LGBTQ star back then? You know, not one who, you know, was forced to kind of sweep their sexuality under the carpet and and not one who you know whose story was basically like a cautionary tale that ended badly but one where perhaps they they made kind of a bit more of an overt contribution to the culture so kind of invented this this character his name's alexander who's also known as the vinyl tiger and for me he was kind of like an alter ego of mine but an amalgamation at the same time of a lot of my pop idols back then and you know obviously he was a new wave artist that didn't know how to sing and didn't know how to dance but that wasn't important back then what bits of the 80s aesthetic did you think a lot about 80s aesthetic so you're saying a diy aesthetic yeah really i i think um i think one of the things that really differentiated the 80s from a lot of the other decades that that we we tend to look back on is there was this really wonderful DIY aesthetic back then you know you didn't um, from a performative perspective you could be pretty much a crappy dancer or a shoddy singer or whatever and you could make it through on the strength of your personality or on your look or even just on the idea that you'd made one or two good records you know there was the possibility of a bit of longevity back then uh, but also because there was this wonderful mix of high and low art that was still going on back in the 80s, which I don't think is happening really anymore, at least not not to the levels that it did back then. So um, this idea that you could kind of craft yourself into something that other people wanted to see or other people wanted to hear, it was a 
really potent part of the 80s and, and, and the appeal for me to write about something in the 80s. Mm, what was the most fun thing or most complicated thing about writing about it? I think that... I mean, especially as involves your character, right? So Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm, I kind of made my life a little bit difficult because the first book is called The 80s, but of course there's also the 90s and the noughties that follow. So, in fact, it's a trilogy. And so there was a lot of... Uh, research that went into these books. You know, I really had to go back in and think and read and watch a lot of, you know, historic footage about what co- what mainstream culture was like in all of those decades. So that, on the one hand, was a huge undertaking, but it was also like a wonderful trip down nostalgia for me as well, you know, and it was lovely to revisit things that I think still have... Um, you know, we still see the impact of some of those cultural moments in popular culture today as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess most people think of the 1980s as a simple time or a simpler time, which is maybe a, maybe once we get nostalgic about things, that's the, you know, everything we feel nostalgic about feels simple because it happened a while back. I mean, I don't, I don't know that the 80s were that simple. No, I don't think they were. I mean, I mean, when we start out the books, we see a guy who doesn't really know what he wants to do. All he knows that he, all that he does know is that he wants to make it in in some way. And and but as time progresses, as the decade progresses, he starts to take his role more seriously. And if you think about the eighties in particular, they they they're known for being you know a bit of a plastic decade. They're times where we we like to look back at them as being naive times and simplistic times, but for all their failings... Yeah, superficial, maybe. Yeah, but, I mean, for all their failings, they were really complex times. I think about the early 80s as being super homogenous. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, what do you think about, like, I don't know, street culture in the 80s, things like that? I think it's... uh, Like like the... yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that... You know, the 80s uh, street culture completely, I think, led to the birth of hip-hop culture. And, you know, we are very much all in the hip-hop world these days. And not only that, but the, the main stars of that, that period also in some way came out of the streets. Perhaps not someone like Michael Jackson, but certainly someone like Prince or Madonna was yeah. very much connected to what was going on underground and, um, and and way before they turned into these global icons that the world had never seen before. You know, there, there was still this possibility that if you were a pop star, you could still have this really original origin story back then, you know, because somehow there was a chance, there was an aspect of luck or, or good fortune to come your way or just being in the right place at the right time. And that, I think, was something that was um, really part of the 80s, this idea that there was a chance for everybody in a way, you know, and and there was an avenue for Mm. everybody to pursue. And I think we don't have so much of that anymore. Or if we do, it's been a bit corporatized and a bit, it's become a bit cynical. So Billie Eilish, right? Billie Eilish, I think about as being someone born from YouTube, uh, but she was she came out of the gate perfect, right? She didn't have 
she, I don't think she's had a bad moment, has she? No, I don't think so. And I think she's part of this generation where if you're in front of an audience, you're expected almost to know what you're doing already. And we didn't have, we, that was not something that was part of the idea of the 80s and some of the 90s as well, you know. You were, you were given the chance to grow into what it was that you wanted to do. You were yes. expected to make mistakes. And, you know, if you think of a lot of the pop stars back in the 80s and the 90s, they got their starts when they were in their 20s. A lot of pop stars today yeah. are starting out when they're 15 or 16 or perhaps even younger. And so the learning curve that they're expected to be on is, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's probably also a little bit um, inhuman. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, like it's, I, it's not fair of us. It's not fair of us to expect that of a fifteen-year-old or a sixteen-year-old. Not at all. But also, I mean, as a fifteen or sixteen or seventeen-year-old, you know, it's clear that you're going to appeal to a certain demographic, right? Obviously, yeah. you know, young favors young, etc. But I think one of the things about starting out your career perhaps as an entertainer or, or with somebody who has something to say is that there's this idea that there is a bit of a backstory that you have had some kind of experience that people are going to relate to on more than just the technical level and so I think this is where a lot of today's stars are at a disadvantage because they don't have that kind of way to connect with audiences based on the perception of what their experience has been but rather sure they're expected just to kind of perform their way into people's hearts. That's a really, that's a really tough thing to do when there's a million great singers on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been looking at some of your submissions um, that we're going to talk about today, and they're from 2016. Yeah, and it occurred to me that in 2016, that is a uh, that's the year that Sam Smith made this gaffe about saying that he was maybe going to be the first openly gay man to win an Oscar. Um, apart from the, the kerfuffle itself, a lot of people at the time, like, you know, Sam Smith aside, some people noted that just the experience of being gay has so changed uh, over the time that Sam Smith maybe shouldn't have been expected to have a different experience, you know, at his age, given his his, his young age, um, I think that might be optimistic. I mean, do you think that there's been a, I guess, adoption of progressive values, air quotes, progressive values in society that means a 20-year-old gay man will have had a completely different experience from a 30-year-old gay man, from a 40-year-old gay man, 50, 60, 70, etc. I mean, do you think that that's the case? I mean, I think it's definitely optimistic to think of that because I think it really depends on where you live on the planet, right? I think, I think there's a lot of geography and, and cultural politics behind that. I think certainly, you know, if we, if we speak in really general terms, the idea of having to sweep your sexuality under, under the rug was really commonplace in the 80s and 90s. But that was also because apart from everything else, there was the HIV crisis and it was a really hostile environment that people found themselves in and very few, let's say, allies in the, in, in the mainstream, you know, to really help the cause, again, in, in, in air quotes, 
Um, I think the the LGBTQ community in general are some of the best activists on the planet. I mean, if you need to get something done, just take it to them. They'll get it done, right? But they've still got more, <laughs> they've got some more barriers to break down. And, and, and again, that's really dependent on where they find themselves geographically. But I, I wanted to add, if I could, that over the summer, I went to this, um, to this dance party in a really small town in the south of Italy, right? So I, my expectations were kind of low. And I have to say, it was just completely taken away and, and, and pleasantly surprised, you know? Me, as someone in their 40s, I will concede to that. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of young people, I would say, in, you know, 18, 19, early 20s. And they were really experiencing their identi- identities in really different ways compared to the way I grew up in the 80s and 90s doing that at their age, you know? So I've been traveling for, you know, or, or lived um, as an expat for more than half my life. So, and I think there's been a couple of instances in the past that I can put down to, you know, homophobia and and feeling unsafe. But I mean, I, I feel for young people today or, or for people in general who still feel unsafe, um, you know, due to the rampant homophobia that exists in some parts of the world. I think in Australia, some great progress has been made. You know, I think there's more visibility. Strangely enough, Sydney in particular has become what's considered, I think, amongst a lot of LGBT people as a gay capital of the world alongside San Francisco and some other places. So, you know, there's still work to do and and everybody's got some kind of cross to bear. Uh, but I think in some places we're heading in the right direction and in other places, you know, geographically speaking, some people are get, um, being put through worse than we were put through back in the 80s and the 90s, you know, because it's become a very politicised debate in some places. You know, I went through, we're probably about the same age, and I can remember some products that were, or or just cultural products that were really meaningful to me, right? And I don't know, maybe maybe 12-year-old me or 10-year-old me was really into like Lilith Fair, or, you know, I remember really liking They Might Be Giants, or whatever, um springboard to your future identity that you're discovering at that age. And I'm wondering, I think Eurovision seems to have that for members of the LGBTQ plus community, right? It's always there. There's an idea for me as an outsider that it's always been there for that community, proudly so. And that one day a year, you know, whoever you are, you that is a community and a product that is open to you. Do you have that experience of Eurovision at all? Or maybe not, because Australia didn't participate when you were a kid. Well, I mean, I've been watching Eurovision because it's been on air in Australia since the 80s. So, I mean, I'm really... Culturally, it's just something that a lot of people do. So I think I I totally can see perhaps, perhaps more so from, you know, the 90s and onwards, maybe the 2000s even more so, um, where that was definitely the case where, you know, the, let's say Eurovision's kind of gay friendly stance was, was becoming a little bit more evident. And, you know, there's definitely... And, and not only like, will 
not sorry, not only like we'll accept you, but we embrace you. Come be oh, you. I mean, let's let's break it down, you know, in a way that I mean there's always there's always a bit of a camp element and always some jazz hands and some glitz going on. But if you think about it, I mean there's been some amazing amazing moments in in the contest's time where the community hasn't only been celebrated but has been made to feel real love you know go back to yeah. 1998 when Dana International won the contest for Israel with Diva you know or when Conchita Verst won for Austria and then there's you know Verka Zedutska from Ukraine I mean these are all people who started out in drag culture went down their own roads and ended up either taking out Eurovision or or as runner-ups, you know, and they're considered Eurovision royalty. And, and there's so much, I guess, so much significance for a lot of LGBT uh, community in those events because, you know, there was also such this outpouring of love from European audiences and Eurovision audiences for them as well. So I think that's a wonderful aspect of uh, Eurovision. And, you know, the other thing to consider is that I don't think the when it comes to the public I mean I don't think there are very large segments of the public that um, that you know think about Eurovision in such black and white terms I think when it comes to Eurovision itself it's 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 conveniently um, a very political argument at times you know look at Hungary which decided it was no longer going to participate in the event because they felt that it was too much a, too much of an LGBT show, you know, and, and that it didn't sit with their cultural policies. I mean, Hungary has a lot of cultural issues at the moment, but, you know, to go on the record and, and say that that's a, that's a problem, I don't think general audiences care about that. They watch Eurovision because they want to have fun, they want to enjoy some culture, and they accept that part of the community is an LGBT community and, and, you know, in the entertainment world, even more so. Yeah, I mean, the thing, this has just struck me now, actually. One of the things that sometimes bothers me about Eurovision, um, and I mean for just sort of like, let's say air quotes cisgender women who uh, participate, is like the amount of performative femininity that you need to be successful. And although that's not true, there are plenty of acts. I have challenged myself on this. There are plenty of acts um, that, that aren't like that. Like I guess Rosalind this year is an example, you know, Snap. There is just a lot of hair extensions and eyelashes and, you know, women who are like 60 or I shouldn't say that, that are like, 50 and they are looking like they are 40 or 30 like they are you know for for a female it seems like there is a very high bar to air quotes being female to participate but i'm looking at this and i'm looking at an act like you know conchita an act like conchita or an act like verka and um verka is just proudly proudly verka right i mean not thin, not got, you know, like age is not a thing for Verka. Uh, size is not a thing for Verka. Like Verka just gets to come out and do Verka's thing, right? In a big way. And uh, ditto with Conchita. I mean, clearly Conchita is a little bit of a different, of, of a different ball of wax, but that, 
I think that gives hope to everyone, doesn't it? I don't know. It gives hope to me anyway. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think absolutely there's, there's every year, there's always a segment of the contestants that make it through that make you think, okay, there's a little bit of change. You know, I, I want to also add in perhaps North Macedonia's entry this year as well. She was great as well. And, and I don't think. Remind me, remind me, remind um, me. Maybe it was called Circles. I can't remember the name of the piece. Maybe her yes, name was yeah. Andrea. Okay. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. So, yes, yes, you know, so there's, sometimes there's always like, um, you know, someone that doesn't fit that kind of corporate glitzy view of what an artist or what a woman should should look like. And thank God for that as well, because really, um, you know, how how many times do we need to see a ruffle dress ruffling and really Eurovision can be so much more than that even this year the girls from Iceland the sisters they were spectacular yes. and they were fantastic in the sense that they just bucked every trend and you just got a very authentic performance that cut through all of the kind of so-called glitz from you know from the girls that were perhaps having to toe the line with what the idea of what you know, a, a woman should be presenting herself as in uh, Eurovision. Yeah, uh, maybe even this year, Monica Liu, who is slinky. I don't oh, know that I'd yeah. describe her okay. as like a sex bomb, right? She's like a human slinky. I don't know. And she's amazing. Or maybe Victoria from the year before who had um, growing up is getting old. Uh, yeah, like a lot of like I think about Eurovision as having a lot of range but I really have to dig down because when I think about Eurovision I think oh goodness it's like gonna be lashes and tans and glitter and size two people and um yeah yeah fair enough it's interesting as well that we tend when we think of Eurovision right it's obvious that it's it's a contest and that's really clear to everyone but we tend and and although it's what Eurovision organizers want us to do we, we tend to end up in this trap where we just think of Europe as one kind of singular entity where the thing is like culturally you can divide this continent into so many different bands where there are so many different conventions and so many different ways of looking at what a person's role is in society and you know this is a contest that in, incorporates countries that are technically on the Asian mainland and on another continent um, in the southern hemisphere I mean like it's kind of complex and so I think everybody's journey at a national level at Eurovision is at a different stage because culturally the ideas are different the you know musically fashion the the, the role of women in each of those societies it's not the same in every one of these countries unfortunately Hey, Eurovision Song Context listeners. For technical reasons, we've had to split this episode in two. Carry on to episode three to hear the rest of my interview with Dave DeVito. (laughs) 